That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Paddy Power is the man behind and in front of one of the biggest sports betting companies in the world today. Founded by three Irish bookmakers, Stuart Kenny, John Corcoran and David Power, Paddy's father, in 1988, the company has grown to an extraordinary size, level of profitability and public awareness across the globe. And I had the chance to sit down with Paddy to talk about all of it. His early life travelling around the racetracks of Ireland with his dad as a kid. The rapid evolution of Paddy Power, the brand and his part in that. And the arrival of online betting and all the dangers that came with it. We get into the risks that Paddy Power have taken in advertising, including the times when they've crossed a little bit over the line. The need for regulation and his own personal feelings on the business itself. I absolutely loved this chat. You will too. Huge thanks to Paddy for doing it. This podcast, Irishman Abroad, has delivered to you for free hundreds of conversations with the greatest Irish people ever over the last eight years. But we've reached a crossroads in 2022. The Irishman Abroad podcast simply can't go on anymore without your support over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. For the month of May, I'm offering a 15% discount on memberships, so there's never been a better or cheaper time to sign up. And in return, you won't just get exclusive access to our previous interviews with the likes of AP McCoy, Porrick Harrington, Paul McGrath and Oisin McConville. You'll get access to all our big upcoming interviews and you'll be ensuring that this show can keep going into the future. So here it is. It's the Paddy Power episode of An Irish Man Abroad. Paddy Power, it's great to have you on The Irish Man Abroad. Does it ever bother you that some people, certainly people abroad, <laughs> think there is no such person as Paddy Power? Well, not really, to be honest. It's quite, um, that's quite the enigmatic thing, isn't it? Where some people think like, you know, everything from like people think I changed my name by default. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm some sort of complete fraud imposter or something like that when the reality is it's somewhere it's somewhere in the middle i mean i used to used to laugh and say to people like no no it's just a, a transition year project that went very well you know <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah so i was chris and patrick power and the company was patty Power. the company was um created in 1988 and i was born in 75 so i was there before the company and i was it wasn't named after me or anything like that it was it was a total coincidence of names OK, well, you, you definitely were in at the ground floor in terms of working with your dad at the tracks. Now, I have a good deal of experience in this end of things in that I was around the racetracks of Ireland 
every single weekend of my early life. The difference between you and I is you loved it, whereas I wasn't as as fond of the whole situation. Do you remember what it was you completely fell in love with? Um, so I guess my earliest memories of going racing with dad was like at the old Phoenix Park, which is mm. gone and defunct now. And there was a horse called Big Daddy. They used to run, they used to always see in my head, I used to always run at the Phoenix Park anyway. And I used to always love that name because in my head, my dad was so big. And um, uh, so I used to always try and back betting that horse. And he'd give me like, you know, 10p or 5p or whatever it was back then. You'd be having like two and a half p each way on something or whatever. Like just when he's in the middle of taking a bet off some high roller or whatever, I'd be tugging at his trousers like going, dad, dad, can I have two and a half p each way? And that's how we used to teach myself and my brother and my sisters as well. I used to, <laughs> used to teach us fractions. Uh, in school, he'd get us to work out how much we'd win if we did that, did it at this better, this much on yeah. this horse, these odds and stuff like that. So it was a purely educational experience for me, you know, uh, going to the racetracks. But I did love it, and I did, and you know, I uh, as a, a small child, I would have been a good bit to the tracks. And then as I got a bit older, obviously, I used to work from during the summers, and that would be just just you know, giving change out of the bag and, and whatever whatever it might be, and. I used to enjoy that kind of traveling around because he, he worked really hard. Like he used to go, like my memory of dad is, um, is that he'd be, we'd just be never there because he used to go to every race meet and he'd, mm-hmm. like, we'd base ourselves with a little uh, kind of a, a chalet. We used to call it, we used to call it the chalet, but it was, it's actually the Paddy Barrett betting shop now in Tremor and Turkey Road, but it used to be a Richard Power shop because that's our, our, uh, the, the old family business. Yeah. But uh, we, we used to be at half the little little house on the upstairs, whatever, and the bedding shop was in the front half. Now it's just a little a little kind of apartment upstairs. But we used to base ourselves there for the summer and go from Tremor to all the race meetings around the country. And during the winter then, or during school times, uh, we did the same gig for Dad from Dublin. But what you used to remember was he'd uh, he'd arrive in, sometimes very late, arrive in, he used to smoke a pipe at that time. He used to drink Heineken, but he'd have one of those big old-fashioned, you know, German kind of pint glasses with the mm-hmm. handle one of those yokes and a Heineken branded one, of course, he'd have his can of Heineken pipe in mouth and he'd sit there and cross his legs and put his briefcase on his knee and open up and start studying the form for the next day because that was one of the things about him. And uh, I keep saying was, he's, he lives about a few hundred meters away, still, <laughs> still he's still around, you know, but uh, he, um, yeah, he used to, he would, he would have been considered a really good judge. He'd do all his own pricing and all his own odds compilation and everything. And back in the day when, there was no computers, you know, so it was all looking back through old forum books and he's got bookcases full of them. Uh, remember the Sean P. Graham used to sponsor the forum book, all the leather yeah. bound, or probably not, what about the leather? Anyway, all the kind of plastic or leather bound, these books with nearly with strings and like holes punched through them and nearly strings hold them together because you'd add on the pages as the as forum of the different races came through. So uh, yeah, that's kind of my, my memory, the haze of pipe smoke. Yeah. Stink of Heineken. Let me ask you, was he ever stressed out? Because I always looked at the bookies in the ring at that time. And as you say, the the big bag of change. And I, I always thought, God, that wouldn't be the life for me. Because when things go wrong, they they go wrong. He he doesn't sound like he carried any of that on his no, shoulders. No, he was very he was very chilled on the outside anyway. Um he uh yeah, he seemed to like He'd take it all in a stride. And I think he just had, I mean, he'd been in it for like, to give you an idea, like, so when he, when he was 16, his dad died. Like, so, so my great granddad would have started as a bookie back in the 1890s. 
and that would have been passed down like he was very successful he built a network of shops across the country and he used to go over and take bets in England in fact he's he's a far more interesting sub <laughs> person to interview for your podcast than I am although he has been dead for many years but um but uh he um so he built up this network of shops there and that got passed down through generations and then but my grandfather's a dad's dad who was called Paddy he died when dad was just 16 and so that meant that my granny so dad's mum her name was uh, Dorothy Bunty Parrish, she was called. I think she was the first woman in the world, certainly the first woman in Ireland to hold a betting license um, because dad was too young to take over the license. And he went, he went to college, he did, did accounts, he got his articles and all that kind of stuff. And then then went to the track and took over the family business. And he, he learned, he had to kind of, like it was a cutthroat place. And I think mm. people thought he was going to be an easy touch. But over time, he got his confidence, did all his own own pricing, and, and got confidence in his in his ability. This as he t- as he tell, told us back in the day, and then when it got to the track, he just had confidence that he had the right price, and he was able to you know back that up by taking positions in in races and stuff. He had a good client base. He uh, I think he lost plenty, but he won plenty as well. And he used to. I remember one day there was one particular day when I was working for him. I was clerking, which means I was writing down the bets as he'd call them out. I'd write them in the big book. Yeah. Beside a ticket numbers, we know who. And most of his most of his business, to be honest, was like somebody could whisper in his ear, and he'd be here like such and such has just had five hundred and that or two hundred, whatever it would be, and you'd scribble all these down. And I remember we were winning loads going into the last race, and then the favorite won the last, and we ended up losing loads in the day. And I was here like <sighs> I, I was more worried about like because he used to give me, I think I used to get like was it thirty quid a week, and if we won, I'd get like another 20 quid on top or something if we won on the week and this was to I, I was keeping track of it and this was this cost me 20 quid basically us losing this day which drove me bananas and I was here like Egypt like why did you do that or whatever and I remember him stop me and say look you can't think of this in material terms you can't think that you just you just lost a car you've just won a house or anything like that you have to be it's just numbers and just over time you've got to believe in your theoretical margin and over time we're going to make x amount of percent on turnover and that's the way you have to approach it or else wow. you're driven demented and it's and that's your, da- your dad talking to you at what age? I mean, there's oh, very like technical 15. terms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 14 or 15 or whatever. And he's trying to, but it did, it struck a chord with me, you know, that uh, it's like, it's, if if it's, put it this, you're not the bookie if you're, if you're kind of, if you're worried about your daily wins or losses, that, that, mm. that means you're the punter. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because it actually, you have to take a long-term view and an overtime view and look at, look at a trend or whatever. And that's, that's the way it works because I mean, like you know, it's it's no secret that the odds are in the bookie's favor in theory. I mean, obviously, it depends who wins the race and how many bets are on that that horse or that sport, the team or whatever. But mathematically, if you go in and you bet on every single person in the race or every single team in the match, you can't win because the odds are created that way to stop you from doing just that. So, in theory, over time, the bookie's going to make his whatever, a couple of percent or whatever, wherever amount of percent mathematically is built into the odds. That, if I the don't, odds I, correct, I don't, Paddy, I don't hear though in what you're describing that the thing that made you love it, like you obviously fall hard for it. Was it, a, was it love or was it, was it something else? Was it that connection with your dad that actually drew you to this thing, the quality time with your father being part of the family business? Or is there actually a, a thing that you can point to, a sensation or a feeling that you can remember that made you go, I love this. Yeah, well, funny, I think that, I I think with racing, I think, I'm not sure, I do love racing, but I think I love it for other reasons. I think I love it for terrible reasons, like for stuff like I just love having a bet 
I love going racing with my mates and drinking pints and backing horses together and that kind of stuff. I love that that occasion and the way it worked, like the family business. So as it as it turned out, my older brother actually went into the on-course business with dad and dad had always like not sorry it wasn't like a uh sat down right right okay there's only room for one of you but that that kind of was how it was going to be so that was going to be willie's gigs my brother willie's that was going to be his gig was going to be running the on-course business and then i went to college and went to school and used to still work did my summers with them and all that kind of stuff until i wanted to go away for summers and things like that and then obviously uh I did all that too and went to college and everything. And then at the end, my final year in college, like I just done a thesis and um, and it was a complete pain in the arse. And then remember dad saying to me, so what do you want to do next? And of course, typical bloke, I hadn't literally hadn't crossed my mind that, you know, I'm going to have to actually get a job at some stage or whatever. It's just like, you know, like you're talking to the man who I <laughs> I lived at home until mum persuaded me that I should I should actually buy a house. I bought a, I bought a house, which sounds like I got a, my first mortgage, whatever, a house. One of my mates moved into it, and about five months later, my mum's here like, "When are you going to move into your house?" So, yeah, nothing gone into it. Yeah, I literally, I would live at home still, even though I've got four kids and a wife and everything. I'd, I'd still live at home if I could. But uh, anyway, sorry. The point is, uh, Paddy Power were doing a so Paddy Power was in existence at this time, obviously, and Paddy Power were doing their first ever graduate program, and I was straight out of college, so Dad was here. Look, well, why did you go for this and see how you get on or whatever? So I went in and did my interview and i'm sure there was no nepotism involved whatsoever but uh, <laughs> ended, up, ended up getting a getting a job as a, a grad in paddy powers but what that meant at that time like this is paddy powers back in when it was just shops there wasn't even telephone betting or anything it was just betting shops in fact there was no screens and there's there was like a tv to watch the racing but actually there were still board markers which was what i had done that that job uh, for the previous summer actually so i went in uh and got a job in theory and head office, but actually the way it worked back then, which was a great time, you had to do at least four to six weeks in working in betting shops to learn how the business ran and all that kind of stuff or whatever. And um, so I, then, I just ended up working in shops for ages and ages and ages. And then I got, then I came up and I, into head office, into the trading room, which was such a grandiose name for me who used to write, just literally copy odds from the newspaper onto a bit of paper and fax it out to all the shops and everything. But you do learn because there's obviously a couple of uh, wily old veterans working in there who actually knew what they were doing, thank God. And uh, and then it was like, I just kind of realized, yeah, I re- actually really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed the people that I'd met, uh, especially when I was working out in, in the different shops it was amazing. Like you just you get to meet all sorts of people, like people you're working with. And I love being customer facing as well. It was deadly. Like you get to meet so many weird and wonderful people. And uh, and then um, and then Stuart Kenny was like this kind of force of nature who was the boss, but he wasn't, he wasn't a scary boss or anything, but he was just... The only thing that would stress you out about whenever he came in, he you'd, you'd invariably be ended up doing something mad. So he'd come in and he'd oh, why do we do this? And he's got this madcap idea. And uh, so I started getting a bit involved in the marketing side of things then. So, so what were his madcap ideas? Because my next question was going to be if mischief was within you or was it something that you saw and were impressed by? But it sounds like these mad ideas were what caught you. Yeah, so like... Like originally, like considering I knew nothing about, sorry, that's that's such a lie. I was I grew up surrounded by the gambling industry, but it was amazingly naive, a typical bloke where I just never even looked around me, so I didn't realise like anything about the industry um, at all. And but then when you get into it, you realise that what Paddy Power was was creating was was effectively like you look back now and say Stuart was creating a brand 
in somewhere where there wasn't really a brand. There was just names of companies, but there wasn't, a, they didn't mean anything. Do you know what I mean? There was just, yeah. so he, he was creating. They, they'd, no, they'd no ads. Like when you think of it, yeah. those, those companies back then, there was no such thing as a gambling book sh- bookie ad. They didn't put up posters. They just were a shop. That was, well, that was it. it. It was just it was just there. Someone you kind of have a look either side and slip in the door unnoticed, hopefully. Um, yeah. But uh, and then Stuart's idea was kind of like, and he honestly was the success to the was in the early part of the business anyway. Uh, certainly was just because it was such maverick thinking, which all think that seems totally normal now. Like it was just horse racing and a little bit of football is what it was. And then he was doing things like, you know, he in his previous uh, business was called Kenny O'Reilly. He'd done Who Shot J.R. Odds mm. on that. And that would have been like unheard of. Like even politics betting and all that kind of stuff was really unusual. Um, but uh, but he was doing things. I, me- I remember one of my, in fact, my first Saturday up in the trading room was when Frankie DeTore wrote his Magnificent Seven, which is a very famous day. Yeah, I remember the day. Absolutely cleaned up all the punters, cleaned up. So Stuart comes up and he's here. Like at this stage, Paddy Power, relatively small, but trying to act big. Because he always had believed if you if you act big, people will believe you're big, and then suddenly you become big. So he was here, right? He said, everyone else is going to start cutting back now in marketing and advertising. We're going to take the biggest ads and all the most expensive papers. And there's like bookies have limits; they had limits, um, and the limits back then would have been much smaller. So you only have to pay out X amount or whatever uh, on a, on bets, as a just in case. Frankie Dettori wrote seven winners and Stuart said, right, no limits. We're not applying limits to anyone, whatever. And because you know, all the other book is in, oh, well, you want 50 grand, but we can only, according to our rules, we only have to pay a 25 or whatever it might be. And uh, so Stuart came in and just started roaring and shouting up the stairs, all these things. And some of the older lads going, geez, he's, like, he's finally lost it, like, you know. But, uh, and he was dead right, you know. It was, it was you know, it was a real lesson learned that day, but, but it was all this kind of stuff. And then, but what it created though was, and it's down to Stuart, it created this environment where, you know, no idea was a bad idea. In fact, the only idea that was a bad idea was a boring idea, right? So stuff right. like who shot Mr. Burns and the Simpsons, these kind of madcap things that you were kind of taking bets on, that you don't, you weren't like, you didn't even take that much in bets on it. In fact, it was an irrelevance and there was a, an irrelevance in terms of financially, but all it did, it created kind of that bit of PR, I guess. PR is, was, was considered valuable. And, yeah, so uh, so that PR that you're referring to is the sense that we're the good time guys that, you know, Paddy Power represents fun kind of silliness. Yeah, you're kind of like, but you're reframing gambling as like, and betting as like, it's like just, first of all, like, you know, every presentation you do, you go out and you go, yeah, you're probably not going to beat us. In fact, mathematically, you have no chance of beating us. But do you know what? It might be a bit of crack. And that's what you're trying to do. And you're trying to say, like, oh, the whole idea behind Paddy Power from the beginning was to have a, a huge volume of small stakes. So you want someone to walk into your shop with like 100 quid in their pocket, but to walk out with 90. You don't want to walk out with nothing or they won't come back. But if they walk out with 90 and they've lost, lost a tenner, but they've spent the day there and had a bit of crack or whatever, and whatever, they, whatever they've enjoyed themselves, then that's great. They might come back again and you might get another tenner out of them. And that was the the kind of the very simple Simon theory behind the business. And one of the ways of kind of portraying that and, and giving the brand personality was like concentrating on the fun part of it. And that like the fun part of it is like, just, you know, it was, it was all lads back then, but just two lads in a pub and just betting on, I don't know, next person to walk out of the jacks or whatever it might be, the stuff yeah. that you just, that, that kind of, to try and tap into that kind of, I don't know, zeitgeist is the right word or that kind of culture or whatever. And that, 
Yeah, well, it's the it's the playground, isn't it? It's the yeah. it's the p- part of you, the the place of you that says, "I bet you, I can't jump that hedge." Exactly. Uh, <laughs> did Stuart ever? It's Kenny Stewart. You're saying? Well, Stuart Kenny is, is Stuart is, Kenny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so did he? Did he sit down and ever talk about that theory of you? Because as you say, it wasn't the done thing. Uh, you, you were the first to it. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't really happening many places in the world, I don't think. But or did he see it abroad and think this is it? Was there was there ever a deep dive discussion on what we're trying to do here? Or was it just more or less understood what he was at? I think I, th- I, I he just he it, it, this was his vision. Right. So himself right. and my dad and a fellow called John Corcoran got together to set up an Irish company to compete against the English companies that had just come into the Irish market in the mid 80s because yes. of the cut in betting tax. And the Irish bookies that were there at the time were old fashioned and tired and had no chance, basically. And these firms like Ladbrokes and Mecca and William Hill and Carl and all these English firms uh, came over and they're opening these amazing new shops, which in, when you look back were kips, but at the time they were amazing. And that the Irish guys had to get together and the, the grand idea was to set up an Irish brand, play on patriotism. People prefer to lose to an Irish brand than they would to an English brand. And mm. uh, and then one of the reasons for the name Paddy Power actually was just for the, if if we were ever successful enough in Ireland to think about moving abroad, that Paddy Power would be a name that might resonate in say the Crickle Woods of London and places mm. like that where the Paddies might, you know, you might get a bit of patriotism of again. So yeah. Um, so that was the kind of the, the very deep thought process of the right. name and stuff. But, but it, you know, it's right back to your great grandfather, Richard yeah. Power, who, you know, worked in this drapery store in Tremor uh, and was had the task of going to uh, put on the bets at the local illegal gambler, had figured out that he was never told to go down and collect the winnings. And as the legend goes, as you've told it before in other interviews, he figured out, I'll just hold on to the money myself. <laughs> and exactly. That's how it all, like that's literally the seed that starts this thing. Uh, he gets caught at the races uh, by his boss on a day that he's meant to be working. And he pretty much starts being a bookie there and then. But within that story, Paddy, is I guess the the kind of understanding that there's a certain amount of jiggery, pokery, horse trading, kind of all is not exactly as it seems to bookies. Were you aware of that kind of stigma that surrounded bookies early on in your life around that time? And was any of this stuff that you were doing part of building some sort of trust base in the the company you were building? Uh, as opposed to, the, as you say, these foreign invaders who who really were up to no good. Well, funny, it's it's funny because it, like when you contextualize it against the the environment now uh, versus say my, when my the I guess the the, uh, the the blossoming of my a part of it like the nineties and two uh, thousands or early two thousands or whatever, um, it's just a very different kind of. Mm. social or environment like really in terms of from, from a betting perspective and you know you think back and a lot of half the stuff we did back then geez you couldn't do now you know i mean because just i don't know attitudes were different and ex- different different levels of acceptability and stuff even with regard to where advertising and marketing i'm talking about but uh you could try and reverse engineer and pretend looking backwards that that was the case but actually i really don't think that much 
depth of thought went into it because we were just we were like ducking and diving and growing and trying to be like it was all about like I mean the 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 three Fs was the company motto: fun, fair, friendly. Like so you're just going to make sure that we're the fairest. We'll always pay out if there's ever any any query, and as long as it's not completely uh, dodgy or whatever, that we'll try and we'll we'll, we'll always try and favour the customer. We try and we basically try to behave exactly the opposite to how the really boring bean counter bookies from England would mm. behave, and that's right. the way we kind of looked at it. And we yeah. wanted to just be considered the ones that you have the best chance with that you have a bit of crack doing it. And that, uh, and that we we represent like in a, at every kind of customer. Tw- then we definitely didn't use this marketing bullshitty language of excuse. Like every customer touch point would kind of represent the brands. There'd be a bit of friendly and a bit of fun about it or whatever. And uh, and the contra- the controversy yeah. kind of came with that because you're kind of what you're trying to do is um, is be relatable, I guess, to the to your customers. Whereas we figured that the industries are we says, says me taking credit for I was in my mid twenties just doing what I was told and having the crack. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I think the 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 thought of the time was um, was to just that, that you know you can't take yourselves too seriously. Like this, your your customers are watching sport and having a few bets. And most bookies were beside the pub. They're probably having a few pints. The lads on a Saturday afternoon in watch the race and and just having a bit of crack. So mm. why wouldn't you continue that crack instead of making it all serious? And Yeah, yeah I know. And it, it is, it, it's such a wholesome beginning to this story in so many ways. At that 2000 seems to be a line in the sand when I researched to prepare for the uh, conversation with you. It really does feel like 2000 in so many ways. And just in terms of the world, 2000 was a, was a, a real benchmark or fork in the road. Do you feel that in terms of what started out, like you were describing there, that this turn to online betting made it become something entirely different? Um, I think ultimately it has become different in many ways because it's obviously so much bigger and more complex than it ever was. Now, 2000 is is probably very early for a line in the sand because at that stage that was when we got uh, I think to be float in 2000 and launched online around the same time is that right hmm. and um and to, when we launched online um again in true kind of Paddy Parfash at the time we actually got Nick Leeson his first gig out of jail was to launch uh Paddy Power online and we we did the um we did it it was in the Conrad Hotel in Dublin I think but but of course, the internet wasn't great for anyone at that stage. So the website went down uh, at the at the press launch, and <laughs> then like, but no, none of the journalists could get online either because was, there was one phone line or something in the hotel to do the whole media conference or whatever. And that that was back in the day when it was perfectly acceptable for a page to take about ten minutes to down to to load or whatever. But uh, but yeah, so that but that that was the beginning of something. And what we I guess what we saw as a company was the potential. Uh, for online betting, but in the in the con and also the one of the reasons for why uh, Paddy Power was successful early and got a got a run in the market, if you like, was because if you think about it, so the other main protagonists at the time were say Ladbrokes, William Hill, and Carl would have been the big three. They had so many betting shops, like like thousand, like fifteen hundred, two three thousand betting shops versus Paddy Power with like one hundred and twenty or whatever, that they almost 
did, well, they didn't want online to work because that, that took away their advantage, if you like. And they're mm. they like a really, they had a proper bricks and mortar advantage that was so expensive to try and even grow to anything like that size that online kind of opened the market and made things a bit more, a bit more difficult. So they kind of almost had put their head, hands over their face and pretended it was, it, it'll never take off. It'll never take off. And that gave us a chance as an upstart to try and, to try and, um, and grow and develop in, in, within that now. And again, you got to remember at the time it was, it was new, like it was obviously completely new. So, you know, you're, we're like, everyone's kind of trying to grow their business and get customers as, as, as much as you can and try and build our brand. And we're trying to launch into the UK then because, uh, we had one shop in London, which allowed us to advertise in the UK. So then you're trying to, you're talking about even in terms of advertising, spending and stuff like that, it's obviously a massive market. So it's much more expensive. And, you know, we had some very impactful billboard ad, adverts like the grannies crossing the road and things like that, that did help us kind of build, I guess, a, a br- again, of trying to build a brand presence and, and create that point of difference. Cause like we're all selling the same thing, if you like, at, relatively at just around the same price. I mean, there's a bit of price competition within it, but uh, around the same odds. Uh, so effectively you want to try and differentiate yourself, yourself in some way. And we tried to do it via brand. And yeah, I mean, brand is such a, a dirty word, isn't it? But really well, it, it, it is. I, yeah, but it, it is kind of breaking into the, the hearts and minds of people as a, a recognizable thing that yeah. a, 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 an upstanding establishment where you can do your gambling uh, and actually breaking into people's pattern is hard. So disrupting in the way you did was probably the, the cheapest uh, way to do it. But the online thing and why I bring it up is that it does give you the opportunity to take on the big guys because it's nearly a completely different way to bet uh, in that, you know, when you have the cash in hand, as you know, it's a totally different sensation to the click of the button. You get what I'm saying here, right? I, t- I, t- I totally get it. I mean, like as a, as an outfit at this stage, I mean, there's still something very appealing about the big dirty wad of 20s oh, in your hand, isn't there? Yeah. Big time. But also equally, I, I, I think the first time I gambled online, I think I knew in an instant <laughs> the same way as if, you, you know, you run your hand over the top of a candle. Yeah. Oh, shit, this is dangerous. Like that was that was way too easy. When was the first time you got a sensation or an awareness for, oh, fuck, this, this, this powerful stuff? Uh, nearly more powerful and unrestrained than the dirty wad in the hand, which you can see diminish as it goes. Yeah, I think, look, I see, I think the, um, I guess the, the realization, it it didn't happen like very quickly or anything, but you you do realize you're able to like, first of all, track your number of customers, right? Versus like, say in a shop where you're, you can see turnover levels, I guess, I got, I I guess not something I ever, did or anything but like i'm sure the bean counters were like seeing that shots were performing well of whatever they meant to best they took and all that kind of stuff but i guess like you said it before you can suddenly people don't have to you, you can advertise to like 
not just people who live in the live around your shops. Do you know what I mean? Because anyone, I guess, can once they have access to to your website and subsequently your apps to, uh, it, further on down the road, that they would be able to access that and bet online. And it opened up betting, opened opened up competition as well. It'd be it probably created more competition, so therefore, in theory, better value for customers too. It made bookies have to be smarter and to be uh, to be more on the ball, and would have, I mean, created a lot of uh what's the word like i mean development and i guess um technology drove a lot of it put it like that so as internet penetration got better and as internet coverage and everything got better then obviously the 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 service got better and quicker and 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 more responsive and yet more time and effort was put into making sure that it was because you have to compete then with international players and companies from from yeah. everywhere or whatever. So you're trying to make sure that yours is as good as everyone else's. I know where you're, I, I understand what you're, the, the, the point you're coming to with regard to like it being so accessible. Like it's so, it's that's so obviously, different. That comes, that, that with that comes a lot of dangers. And I think you're, you're obviously right because it does, because now effectively, like as, as I say, you've got a betting shop in your pocket. Um, so with, with, with your, nowadays with your phone, now it wasn't the same back then at the start. You probably were loading up the, there's some supercomputer or whatever to, to try and get the, yeah, get yeah. the web page. We all remember dial-up. Oh, Lord. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and funny, and the iterations of where it got to where it is today was things like, I don't know, do you remember WAP? Do you remember oh, that? God, yeah. 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 So do you know what I mean? Like WAP, like, wow. When you're looking at that, going, this, this will never be. Teletext on your phone. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it does, it, it is all, it all kind of tracks the same, it, it, it tracks with technology effectively. It just, I guess it's just, it's like, but, flight, but in so many ways, like, Paddy, like like Brezzy is always talking about this that your your brain is enabled for uh, what technology has done, uh, the amount of stimuli that you uh, take in on a daily basis through your phone, through your screens, through your TV. It, your brain hasn't evolved to it yet. The technology's evolved faster than your uh, uh, biology. Uh, did you ever get that sense along that journey from <laughs> WAP to uh, ISDN to fiber that this technology is moving so fast that w- we're not even we're we're in an uncharted territory. And we don't we're kind of finding our way here with stuff that with a technology that's so advanced, it's nearly hard to keep a hold on it or keep some kind of grip on what's what's taking place because you know what i mean like the the boom in popularity of online must have been you know it must have paused you must have all paused at some point gone how the fuck is this happening well i think i think what it what it suggests yeah like sorry i mean you're right especially now when you look at now the size of like i guess the global market and even our company how big it's become from from where it began if you like it's uh i guess as you grow up even as an individual but also as a company you kind of there's responsibility more responsibility there than you would have considered there should be way back when and like contextually with regard to responsible gambling like contextually like when like not, i'm not saying this is right i'm just telling you how it was mm. like back in like the i don't know 1995 just pick a year 1995 basically client confidentiality would have been the most important thing. So the big punter in the betting shop, you just wouldn't ask him where he got the money because that would be considered 
like in, intrusion of his privacy or whatever. And he sure whatever. Now I mean, it, it'd be you wouldn't be having fellas walking in with hundreds of thousands around it. But even do you know what I mean? But yeah. like, but nowadays that that's kind of come full circle where somewhere in the middle is probably a compromise because the reality is that uh, like it is basically to, exactly to your point. Like just for whatever, just whatever the number of people who are predisposed to a gambling, a gambling addiction or a, a, probably any addiction, but a gambling addiction anyway, just say, just say it's, I think it's a statistic of something at 0.6 of 1%, just, just say it's 1%, right? Just to pick a number. Okay. So it probably always was, but that was always 1% of like a much smaller number of people who were playing because they wouldn't have been in the betting shop or they wouldn't have been at the races or whatever. And now that one percent is is exposed to it because of advertising and 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 like basically the the accessibility of online yeah, proliferation of it, yeah, exactly. And that's and that's the thing. And I think I hope we've come through like a, if there's a curve of a, some innovation curve or technology curve or something, you'd like to think that there's been learning, learning, learning years, and now the solution years hopefully coming. You know, because uh, like the I could just uh, like like not in their day to day anymore, but I can just tell you that like there's like 200 people in Paddy Barrett's working on responsible gambling. Like, so that's like a lot of people, a lot of clever techie type of people who are trying to figure out ways of making it safer without trying to compromise. And this, I know this, this is, it sounds like corporate speak, but I trying to compromise like, you know, the, the experience for your, the people who don't have an issue with gambling, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's, it's that it's trying to basically, if, if gambling is a, is a legal activity, which it is, then, being able to make it in such a way that it's as safe as possible, but also as fun as possible for the people who don't have a danger with it. I mean, that's kind of the holy grail. That's what you're after, you know. So that's the first half of my chat with Paddy Power. There's only one way to hear the rest and one way to support our podcast so that it can continue giving you this kind of content for years to come. Join up over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad, as I said, to hear the rest. It takes a minute and a few clicks. You'll be sent a link. You paste that into your podcast app and off you go pick and choose between our sports film music and politics episodes or just hear the rest of this conversation with Paddy Power that can be it there's no obligation you can cancel whenever you like but just sign up over there and be making a big difference uh, and we're going to go even deeper as I said in this conversation into the future of online gambling the US market addiction in young people and the best bet that Paddy himself has ever made Sound and production on today's episode is by me, Tina and Mikey make it all happen. And uh, we'll be back on Tuesday with the Irishman running abroad, our running podcast with Sonia Sullivan every single Wednesday. Now we've moved the release day from Tuesday to Wednesday. Just a little heads up on that. So Wednesday for Irishman running abroad with Sonia Sullivan and Marion McKeown will be back next Friday. Jordan's reading Heading over to London to see what lies beyond the shores, Mike, and I really hope it works out tremendously well for him. Hello, you're listening to the Irishman Abroad podcast with me, Jarnath Regan. This is episode one. I am extremely excited about it. The move to England seems to have worked out for the best as Jarlath's chat show podcast and Irishman Abroad has a million listeners every week. It's always up in the top one, two or three of the most popular podcasts in a given week. Irishman Abroad has earned rave reviews for fancy newspapers like The Guardian, The Irish Times. I listened to a lovely interview this week by Jarlath Regan on the Excellence and Irishman Abroad podcast. 
He has just returned from a trip to the Edinburgh Fringe where he recorded the 100th episode of his hugely popular broadcast series, An Irish Man Abroad. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm a big fan and it's going from strength to strength. They freak to sweat the technique. The experience in Europe was beautiful. Jar with Regan, he did a great job. I met him in Edinburgh. The one, the one I like is the Irishman abroad one, and mainly because the, his interview style is so brilliantly ramshackle. At the start, it really annoyed me. I have to say, I re, really annoyed me at the very start. When they sweat the technique, I think it's ramshackle. Yeah. No, I, I think Charlotte actually really is ahead of the game. Actually, when he's interviewing. It's uh, an honour, Charlotte, to love your podcast. So <laughs> well, thanks, thanks a lot. Somebody told me about your podcast a few years ago, and I obviously travel a lot. The Irishman Abroad definitely take the box, and I've downloaded a lot of your podcasts. And this most of all, it's a time for honesty, lads. Honest Ken early there. How you doing, Mark? <laughs> Honest Ken, you showed the way in the very first broadcast I heard in 2017. This is from an Irishman abroad. I think you had half of the uh, previous uh, Irish rugby team on it. I was getting, uh, for God's sake, will you, will, you, will you do me a favour? Will you get him off my back? Will you just talk to him? <laughs> More than one million people worldwide have listened, and now Jarlath Regan is expanding his podcasting empire. You kind of got into the podcasting game before it became a popular thing, you could yeah. say. Look, you're never a man to sit on his hands. You've been doing other podcasts. And peep the technique. Thank you so much for having me on. I have the app and the subscription and everything. Anyone that knows you is well aware of your incredible podcast in Irishman Abroad. Like years ago when I first found your podcast, I said to myself, one day I want to be on that show. <laughs> and, and there was one story that I think Jonathan Regan told who presents an Irishman abroad that podcast and he does an amazing podcast called an Irishman abroad oh, it's an honor Charlotte to love your podcast great to be with you I love the podcast thank you thanks Charlotte it's such a pleasure and an honor I can't even tell you I, I'm such a fan 